my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. What an honor and privilege it is uh, this morning to be here sharing my thoughts on the book of Galatians. Uh, when Jimmy told me uh, several months ago that we would be moving into the book of Galatians, I shared with him that the book of Galatians and Romans and Genesis are some of my favorite books in all of the Bible. Uh, these books have significantly uh, changed my understanding of God and his character, the law and its purpose, and the nature of man and relationship. When I read the book of Galatians, I see a book that focuses on the role of the law and its purpose in our life. The law, or God's moral law, has both a permanent and a temporary role in our life. You foolish Galatians, why are you returning to what, to the what in lieu of the who? You foolish Galatians, why are you returning to the law and forsaking the giver of the law? You foolish Galatians, why are you forsaking your freedom and placing yourself back into bondage? You foolish Galatians, why are you forsaking your newfound, intimate relationship with the Lord? These, I believe, are the core messages of Paul to the Galatians, and a very real and practical warning to us as well. Let me start with a question. How are humans uniquely different than all the rest of God's creation? How are humans uniquely different than all the rest of God's creation? I think two in two areas. The first is that we have a capacity for morality, unlike any other creature. And number two, we have a need and desire for deep interpersonal relationship. For someone who loves to travel, I've been blessed with a career that has either directly or indirectly allowed me to travel to many places around North America, Central America, South America, and Europe. Last year, for example, I traveled to Iceland and got to spend the weekend visiting some of the most beautiful sites I've ever seen. This was one of the photos taken from that trip in a very remote location where I was probably only one of four or five people in a couple square miles. Maybe you've been in a similar situation. Your first response is to gasp at the beauty, but then you quickly look around for someone to share it with. I then FaceTimed my wife, Allison, so that she could be a part of my experience. But as you know, it's just not the same. The truth is we could visit the greatest places on earth, but if we don't have someone to experience it with, it's just not the same. For what we see and what we do pales in comparison to who we do it with. Relationships, they are the lifeblood of humanity. I believe the most important thing in our life is relationship. Relationship with people and relationship with God. More specifically, I believe it's intimate relationships that are of utmost importance because these kinds of relationships impart life rather than take it. It's my intention to show over the course of this message how the moral law, and more broadly, the law in general, is the mechanism by, by which we can experience intimacy with God and others. 
I believe this is the core of Paul's message to the Galatians and to us. That once you've experienced grace, a life-giving, intimate relationship with the Lord, why would you ever go back? In the military, they use the term bluff, which means bottom line up front. So I'm going to give you my bluff for today's message. I believe uh, it's, it's important to understand how intimacy is formed. And so what I want to walk through this morning is um, the path to intimacy. I believe we start off in innocence. Uh, and by that, I mean that we, when we're born, we don't know right from wrong, good and evil. But God has placed within each one of us a conscience, a God conscience. And over the course of time and experience, that conscience begins to bear out within us what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. And we live in a world where people are free uh, to choose the behavior that they want for good or for evil. And as part of that, we, sometimes we choose uh, to do wrong things and we experience the shame and the guilt as a result of that. Other people tend to hurt us and we put up emotional walls of protection. As we continue through life, we're looking around at others around us, trying to assess their character. And I believe that through time and experience, we use the law that's written on our hearts to measure someone's behavior to reveal their character. And once we've come to know the character of someone that is trustworthy, at that point we can place faith and trust in that person. At that point, we might trust that person, but we still have something that we have to do. We have to become vulnerable. We have to let down the walls that we've built. And I believe when we do that, real relational life begins. There we will experience freedom, joy, and peace. I believe that everything I just talked about on the right side of this trust and faith line are traditional transactional relationships. They're the default way of relating to someone on a surface level, superficial. These kinds of relationships are conditional based. If I do this, then you will do that. There's no life in those kinds of relationships. But when I come to a place that I trust someone by faith, that's an intimate relationship. And I believe that this is the message of Paul to the Galatians. I believe what he's saying is that you were born into a law-based system, but you came to a place that you had a personal experience with Jesus Christ, that he was portrayed as crucified before you, and you found life in that relationship, and these Judaizers have come along, and they're trying to pull you back into bondage under the works of the law. So with the bluff already done, I want to walk through every one of these stages of intimacy because I believe that uh, relationships um, build a foundation for not only with other people, but for, with God. In order to see the role I believe the moral law plays in development of intimate relationships, I think we need to observe how intimate relationships are formed. I believe there are five basic stages that we must walk through in life before we are capable of having intimacy with God and with others. So starting with the end in mind, let's look at intimacy first. What is intimacy? Well, the etymology of the word, uh, this word is derived from the Latin word intimus, which means inner or inmost. The Oxford Dictionary would define intimacy as the inmost thoughts or feelings proceeding from, concerning, or affecting one's inmost self. The emphasis of intimacy is clearly as the, in, the emphasis of intimacy is clearly on the inner or inmost portion of man. In one way, you could say it's the spiritual aspects of a person. 
Intimacy with another person could involve intellectual, emotional, and physical. But for the purpose of this talk, we will focus on intellectual and emotional only, not physical. What are some of the attributes of an intimate relationship? Number one, they are others-focused. People in intimate relationships tend to focus on the other person's inward attributes. They see and relate to the who of the person rather than the what they do. Number two, forgiveness. The core foundation of an intimate relationship is forgiveness. Without forgiveness, intimacy is simply not possible. When one party does damage their relationship, the opposite party is always willing and ready to extend forgiveness, without exception, without question. The third characteristic of intimacy is unconditional love. This kind of love is rooted in the goodness of the giver and not the worthiness of the recipient. Its goal is to give regardless of what can or cannot be provided in return. The fourth is acceptance. One party has come to know and experience the goodness and unconditional love of the other party, and rather than trying to earn the other's favor, they simply rest in the truth that they already have it. Number fifth, complete transparency. People in intimate relationships do not hide or cover up anything from the opposite party. How they portray themselves to others is 100% in line with their actions and thoughts. In this sense, their inner and outer person is in perfect alignment. Number six, freedom. People who are completely transparent and unconditionally accepted have nothing to hide nor anything to gain and therefore are free to be, to be who they were created to be. We could say they have life in their relationship. Or said another way, it's a kind of relationship that bears fruit unto life. They have a peace and a freedom that is independent of the physical circumstances around them. The seventh characteristic is it's unnatural. Intimate relationships are not the default, are not the default way of relating to one another. Broadly speaking, initial relationships are transactional in nature and based on predefined rules of engagement whereby the strength of the relationship is based on both parties' ability to keep the rules. Transactional relationships are superficial and behavior-focused, the end of which is often pride or despair, depending if we meet the other party's expectations or not. In summary, intimate relationships produce life and freedom in our inner person, while transactional relationships have the tendency to pr produce death and bondage. Now with the end in mind, let's start from the beginning. As I've already mentioned, I believe we come into this world completely innocent, with no mental understanding of right or wrong, good or evil. Deuteronomy 139, Moses, referring to the Israelites entering the Promised Land, says, Moreover, your little ones and your children who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil. They shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. We know that because of a lack of faith that the Israelites wandering around the desert were not able to enter the Promised Land. 
And that was true of the adults age 20 and above. But for everyone 19 and below, Moses says, they do not yet today understand right from wrong, good from evil. So I'm not going to hold them accountable. They will go in. They will possess it. Hebrews 5.14, the author says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That tells me that understanding good and evil is a process that we have to walk through using the mature food, which is the word of God. So we come into the world innocent. Conscience. Similar to how the monarch butterfly, butterfly innately knows how to yearly travel some 3,000 miles from the northern reaches, reaches of the U.S. To, the cent, to central Mexico, or how a newborn foal instinctively knows how to stand, walk, and run within minutes of birth, God has put within each of us a conscience capable of telling us if our actions are right or wrong. And by right or wrong, I don't mean subjectively according to each individual person, but I mean absolute right or wrong in accordance with God's moral standards. I don't want to under, understate this point as I believe the God-given conscience and the role that it plays in human behavior and in relationships is widely misunderstood or missed altogether both inside and outside of the church. So what is the conscience? According to the Oxford Dictionary, the part of your mind that tells you if your actions are right or wrong. A person's moral sense of right or wrong, viewed as acting as a guide to one's behavior. What does the Bible say about conscience? As a side note, I would encourage you one day to just go through the Bible, and every time you find the word conscience, look at it in context. Uh, I've done that study, and it's absolutely eye-opening. Romans, Romans 2, 14-15 says, When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and, through, and, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. Paul is saying that even for the Gentiles who have never had an, a written count of God's moral law, by their own actions, show that they already know the law, for it is written on their hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. But on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves or we show ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What Paul is saying here is that his life has been an example living out the truth of God's law before the Corinthians and that in the sight of God, their own conscience testifies to this truth. For Paul, the absolute power the power and absolute reality of the God-given conscience is so universal that he can appeal to people he's never even met to convict them of the truth of his preaching the gospel. I mean, think about that. Paul wrote letters to all kinds of people he never, ever met, but he was able to convey truth to them. And on the basis of conscience alone, ask their conscience to bear witness to that truth because the law is written on our hearts. 
It's the equivalent of me walking up to a Yanomami Indian who's never seen a Bible or a Christian and telling them the God who created all things has declared it's wrong to steal from someone else. Since God has already written this truth on their heart, their own conscience bears witness within them to the truth of not only the command, but the giver of this command, God himself. How do we come to know what is right, what is wrong? I believe the answer is time and experience, and of course, the conscience. Remember the Hebrews verse above, Hebrews 5.14, but solid food, talking about the word of God, is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. What might that process look like? So this is, this is me from birth to death, that line up there. And there's my heart. I want to walk through at least my understanding of how the conscience is developed. I may be wrong. So why did I put a heart up here? Because for the Israelite, the heart was the organ that gives life, where you feel emotions and make choices. Not our mind, but the heart. That was the seed of man, the heart. So as we have already talked about, God has put a conscience in every single one of us. And so that conscience is in the back of my mind, always ready to tell me if I've done something right, if I've done something wrong. Now, what if I tell a lie? Perhaps this is the first lie I have ever told. Well, what's going to happen? My conscience is immediately going to produce guilt within me. We all know this. We've all experienced it. And in the back of my mind, I'm going to know that I'm going to associate that when I told a lie, that that produced guilt in me, and that's an evil action. And I believe, I believe the same is true in the other way around. That if I, if I, out of love, help someone, let's say I help an old lady across the street, well, in my loving her, that's going to produce joy. My conscience is going to produce joy within me. Over the course of time, as I have life experience of all the things that not only that I may do, but that I might witness in other people, these experiences are going to produce within me an understanding of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And in that way, I believe the law gets written on our hearts over time. So if we look back at that verse in Romans again, Romans 2.15, referring to the Gentiles, Paul says, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So the reality is that we live in a world where everyone has personal responsibility for their own behavior. Sometimes our behavior is in line with the law written on our hearts, which is naturally good. And at other times we transgress the law. And in biblical terms, we call this sin. Within the context of relationship, there are two major consequences of sin. The first, sinning against others. When we sin against others, our conscience immediately produces guilt within us. Just like in the garden, this guilt often causes us to run, to hide, and to blame, to cover up what we've done, thus further damaging the relationship. The second consequence of sin in relationships is when others sin against me or you. 
Similarly, when others, when others hurt us, especially when deeply hurt, we put up walls of protection to guard our hearts and mind from future pain. The consequences of sin impacts both parties, no matter which direction sin occurs. One party running due to guilt, and the other party putting up emotional walls of protection. I believe this is exactly what Paul is referring to in Romans 8 when he talks about the law of sin and death. The reality of sin and its destructive power in a relationship is so absolute for Paul that he calls it a law. Just like the law of gravity, it's absolute that if I drop something, it will fall. And when sin piles up and not dealt with, our outer skin is hardened. And our true identity gets further and further hidden behind a facade. Thus a death of sorts to the real me, to the real you. So up until this point, when the conscience is fully developed, a person has had enough life experience for their God-given conscience to have written the law on their hearts, such that they absolutely know right and wrong, good and evil. In addition, we will have experienced enough sin and its consequences in life that we don't freely trust just anyone. On one hand, we may be actively trying to protect our heart from others, and on the other hand, we long for connection, acceptance, and deep interpersonal relationship. An internal dilemma, indeed. Character. As we continue through life, we interact with other people we catalog each person on the basis of these universal standards of right and wrong. We come to know those who can be trusted and those who cannot on the basis of their behavior as compared to the law. Just think about it in your own life. Certainly you know people who are trustworthy, honest, and exhibit unconditional love. How did you come to know this about them? You observed their behavior over the course of time, and the standard by which you measured them against was the law, the law written on your heart. In summary, you, you used the law to measure their external behavior as a means to assess their internal character. Faith. What is faith? Some say it's blind, but is it? Faith comes when I have observed and experienced over and over again the goodness of a person's character. I come to a place with that particular individual that I no longer need to relate to them on the basis of rules or their behavior. But instead, I come to trust by faith in the goodness of that individual, as has been demonstrated by their character over time. It is the point when I see the who behind their what. It is then that I see their inner person. Could this be, could this also be how we come to faith in the God of the Bible? I think it is. God put within each of us his fingerprints at birth. He wrote the law on our hearts such that we all know absolute right and wrong, good and evil. We know these things even before we come to know him by his written revelation. Over the course of time, we come to experience his character, goodness, and unconditional love as revealed through the Bible and the testimony of Jesus. When, we put, when what he put within us, our conscience, 
bears witness to the truth of his character as, as revealed in Scripture, we come to a place where we can trust. We come to a place where we can trust by faith in the Lord. In this sense, we are no longer under the law because the law's job is complete. It was used by us to reveal God's trustworthy character. When faith has come, we have come to a place to place of seeing the who behind the what, the giver of the law behind the law. By faith, we move from a superficial, superficial transactional relationship into a personal and intimate relationship with the Lord. Vulnerability. Once I've seen and known the goodness of another and have come to a place of trusting them, there is still something that I must do, that you must do. I must drop the metaphorical fig leaves. I must lower the walls that I have put up. I must become vulnerable. I need to allow the other person to see the real me. I can finally... I must become vulnerable. I need to allow the other person to see the real me. Sorry. I can finally rest from the work of pretending to be someone that I am not. In this, I have freedom. Hebrews 4, 10 through 12, the author referring to the Israelites entering the promised land says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered God's rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. In other words, we don't have to keep trying to be someone we are not. Just to be perceived as being good. No, no. Standing spiritually naked before the Lord, the old me has died and the new me is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For I am a new man, changed by grace and forgiveness. Brene Brown, research, research professor of the University of Texas, who's been studying guilt and shame and vulnerability for the past 20 years, says this, vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, trust, empathy, and innovation. I'll read it one more time. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, trust, empathy, creativity, and innovation. You know what vulnerability is? It's repentance. And finally, we're back to intimacy, the place of unconditional acceptance and love, the kind of relationship that gives life instead of stealing it. I had originally prepared uh, 10 or 11 texts that I wanted to walk through throughout the entire book of Galatians, um, but I realized there was just not enough time to be able to do that. And so uh, I picked two particular sections out of Galatians that I wanted to share this morning. You've probably been there before. You're reading scripture and you come across a verse that it, it just, deep down in your soul it speaks to, but you can't quite get your mind wrapped around it. You can't quite understand the truth that it's trying to convey. It's like right on the edge. Well, the verses that I want to share this morning have been those verses for me. They've been the anchor that I've gone back to over and over again as I've studied this book. The first one is um, Galatians 2.19, and the second set is Galatians 3.21-25. 
So Galatians 2.19, for through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. For through the law, Paul says, I died to the law that I might live to God. What is Paul saying here? I mean, in order for Paul to really get to the point where he could live unto God, and I don't mean live as in that he has physical life. I'm talking about live so that he has, he has life in his spirit. How did Paul get to a point where he, he was able to live to God? I believe Paul had to go through the entire process that we just talked about. That for Paul, he had to learn what's right and wrong. He had to have the, the law written on his heart. And that Paul had to walk through life assessing people and relationships, God included, whether their character was good or evil through that law. And that once he came to experience the goodness behind God as demonstrated in Christ, at that point, he was able to trust by faith. And the law was no longer applicable. Not in the sense of bringing him to God. So for Paul, and I think every single one of us, that we have to go through this law process and that we have to ultimately come to a place where we see the goodness in the other party. And when we do that, we die to the law so that we might live in that intimate relationship with the other person. For Paul, God. Galatians 3, 21 through 25. There's five verses here. I want to take them one at a time. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly, righteousness would have been by the law. We can see that clearly. Transactional-based relationships, they don't give life. They often take it. The law, Paul says in, in Romans, that when the commandment came, I died. So Paul has not been able to find life in the law, nor righteousness. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Every single one of us are raised in this law-based system. And it is good. But eventually, we all come to a place where we fall short of that standard. And we all are confined under the law, as Paul says here. So that the promise might be available to us. And how do we receive that promise? It is for those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. This one really hit me. What's Paul saying here? He said that the law was keeping me, it was holding me, it was protecting me. For what? For what would afterward be revealed. Notice he says that faith comes after the law has done its work. Verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. What is the role of a tutor? When I think of the tutor, the word tutor, I think of a teacher. And a tutor, I think of as a temporary teacher. So the tutor comes into the class and has an assignment to teach the students. And once the teacher has performed that, the role of the teacher is done. And so Paul is saying here, um, not only is the law protecting us in the previous verse, but here the law is acting as a tutor to point us towards something, to point us to towards Christ. 
that we might find our justification by faith, not by works. Romans 3.7 says that none are righteous, no, not one. But that's under a law-based system. We do have justification in Christ by faith. So, what is the relevance to the law to me today, in 2022, almost 2,000 years after Christ? Some of the questions I hear sometimes, and some of the things I've struggled with is, since Jesus died for us, are we still under the Old Covenant? Are we still under the Sinai Covenant? Are we still under law? I think the real question is, what is the relevance of the law to us today? And the law can be a little bit confusing because the law means several different things in the Old Testament. I'm aware of at least three different things that the law means. There was the ceremonial law, there was the civil law, and there is the moral law. So let's take them one at a time. The ceremonial law. Are we still under the ceremonial law? I think the book of Hebrews says clearly no. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the law-based system. He is the final sacrifice. We no longer go around sacrificing animals. Um, so I would say, no, we are no longer under the ceremonial law. It had a purpose and it had a time, but that time is over. How about the civil law, the Jewish civil law? Are we still under that? I think in a way, yes, and in a way, no. We're not under the specific requirements of the Jewish law, but every law-based system that exists today, uh, in part, has its roots based in uh, the early Jewish civil law. So in a way, yes, we, we live in the United States of America. We are under civil law. How about the moral law? I think the moral law has two roles, and we've already discussed these to some extent. But as it relates to relationship between myself and either someone else or myself and God, what are the two, what are the two roles that law plays? I think, number one, the law reveals character. It is the standard by which we measure another person's external behavior, which over the course of time reveals their inward character. Is that permanent? I think it's temporary. I think once the law has done its work to reveal character, we no longer need to relate on the basis of law alone, but we enter into an intimate relationship with that person. Number two, the, I think that the law defines life and death in the relationship. The law also defines the boundaries of relational health between two parties. I mean, think about it. If I, if, if I barely know you and I lie to you, I'm still gonna reap the consequences of my guilt telling me that what I've done was wrong and it's going to damage that relationship that really isn't even that old. But let's say I were to lie to my wife, who I have an intimate relationship with. If I lie to her, I still expect to bear the same consequences of that, to damage the relationship and to, force, uh, to cause uh, guilt and shame within me. So I believe in this sense, uh, this sense of the law and relationship is permanent. So in summary, I think there's two roles of the law today. The first is to reveal character, which is temporary. And the second is that it defines life and death, which I believe is permanent for all time, for all peoples of all locations. So let me try to land this plane. How can we make practical application of all we've talked about this morning? Let me recap. 
We spend a lot of time talking about how intimate relationships are formed and are the, and are the important role and the important role that our God-given conscience plays in our absolute understanding of right and wrong. We also discussed how we used the law to assess someone's internal character to determine their trustworthiness. And after we've entered into intimate relationship, we are no longer under law. Number three, we also talked about how damaging sin and its consequences is to a relationship and how a single sin can drive a wedge between both parties, one by guilt and the other by putting up walls of protection, but both moving in opposite directions. We also talked about how unresolved sin can pile up in our life, hardening our external character, further isolating the real me deep within. The real me within, who so badly desires connection, love, and belonging of others. The real me, dying inside because I can't take this truth to anyone in fear of being further rejected, further isolated. So I hold on to the truth, put on a smile, and walk through life as if everything is okay. But deep down inside, I'm dying. Maybe you've been there in the past. Maybe you're there now. I believe this is what Paul was referring to when he said, the wages of sin is death. In many places, he calls it bondage. I think for Paul, the reality of the consequences of sin is so powerful and absolute that he calls it the law, the law of sin and death. We talked about this earlier, but you know something? We didn't read the verse that this comes from. Romans 8.2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. There is another law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? How do I access the reality of that kind of law? This kind of law is an unnatural law. It's the kind of law that is beyond our normal way of seeing things. This kind of law is executed when I invite someone very special into relationship. For when I have found no human that I can sit down with and bear out my heart without the fear of rejection and without the assurance of forgiveness, there is yet still one who will. For there is one who so badly wants his child to come home to be restored in intimate relationship, that he is willing to demonstrate the extents of his love toward us by giving of his own life. For the greatest act of love that you and I could ever demonstrate towards someone else would be to give of our own life. So that is what he did. He demonstrated to us, for us, the greatest act of expression of love toward us we could humanly know. For he is other-focused. He extends forgiveness without exception, without question. His love is unconditional. His acceptance is unwavering. For he desires transparency. For he is freedom. For he is unnatural. He is the intimate relationship. For when you have... For when you find yourself trapped in the law of sin and death, remember, there is a greater law. Go, be vulnerable, and sit in unconditional love and acceptance of the Father as demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross. Be changed. You foolish Galatians, 
come home. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that Paul took the time to pen this book of Galatians. Father, we're also thankful that you created us for relationship. Father, that you put your fingerprints on us at birth. That you didn't just leave it up to us to fumble in the dark, to find the God of creation, but that you put it deep within us such that it would bear witness to the truth of who you are and the goodness of your word. Father, you had it all planned out in the beginning. You knew that we wouldn't be able to live up to those standards. And you knew that there would be a resulting guilt and shame that would destroy us and our relationships. But you already had something in mind, Father. You sent Christ to demonstrate your unconditional love for us. Father, I pray for each and every one of us this morning that when we are wrapped up in bondage to sin, Father, I pray that we remember that there is a greater law, that there is a law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and that we might stand in the truth of that. Help us to do that, Lord. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just ask you a couple of questions in light of what you said. So you know the scripture talks about how we harden, we can harden our conscience. We can sever our conscience. Um, how does that fit in, do you think? So remember last week we talked about the promise where God said, I'm going to put a new heart. I'm going to take out your stone heart. I'm going to put a new heart of flesh. I'm going to write my, my laws on your heart. Versus, So I, I very much agree with everything you said about how God has put his law on our conscience from, from get-go, right? So, so when, we, when we pass that line into vulnerability, right, and we put our faith in God, do you think he does something there when somebody maybe has a really hard heart? Does he change out their conscience? Does he repair their conscience? What do you think about that? I think that every opportunity we have in life, we're confronted with a decision. We can either um, choose to obey or disobey. And I believe that when we have truth before us, uh, if we make a habit of obeying that truth and responding in obedience, then we will always be in tune to be able to hear the Spirit. But I believe the opposite is true. I believe if we continue to um, uh, disregard what our conscience is trying to tell us, that over the course of time, that we will stop being able to hear that conscience within us. And so I think that is the conscience that gets hardened. Am I answering your question? No, no, that's right. So what does God do with that when we become... When we become we, how do we cross over if our heart is hardened and our conscience is harder? Is there a way for us to enter into vulnerability if we've got a hard conscience like that, you think? I think Paul addresses that in Romans 11. For he says, for the hardened Jews, he says that there is still hope. And the hope is the jealousy that they might see in those who do believe and do have an intimate relationship. So I think we can get to a point where we so harden our hearts that we can no longer see a relationship with God. But what we might be able to see is the relationship that he has produced in the people around us. And so I think that's what Paul is saying in Romans 11, is that it might be that jealousy is the thing that opens our eyes back up to his goodness. Well, that's really good because I have someone I love very much and, and they're just, they're very hard, right? And I always wonder, how do you, how do I win back this person that I love? And what I just heard you say is maybe, just maybe, them seeing God at work in my life and in your life might bring that person who's hardened to a place of being able to 
you know, see, see their need of that kind of relationship. So if that's true, then it's really important for us to live a real vulnerable life with God and with each other, right? So that people can see the goodness of that. Mm -hmm. Would that be correct? Amen. Yes. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.